All right, good morning once again. Um, you're going to have to pardon my voice. Um, I just got congestion stuff. Yeah, that's a second that this morning. <clears throat> um, I made the mistake of getting out and cutting grass yesterday. Mainly it was chopping up leaves um, without putting any kind of respirator on, and now I can't breathe. <clears throat> so, we'll, but we'll make it through this. Um, we are beginning a new series this morning um, in the book of Zephaniah. I told you that a few weeks ago to, to be reading uh, through that. Um, a lot of folks might say it's kind of interesting that you would do something like Zephaniah during Advent. Um, it's supposed to be a time of joy and, 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 and of welcoming, and Zephaniah at least begins completely opposite of that. But what the book of Zephaniah does, and, and what you'll see in the name Satisfied does, is it gets to the heart of true satisfaction. And to do that, to get to the heart of true satisfaction, we're going to take this pilgrimage towards what Zephaniah eventually gets to, the ultimate goal of his work, and that is to get to a satisfying salvation. And it's important for us during the season of Advent, um, for us, because we're kind of post-Jesus, right? So in, in the Old Testament, you see a people who are longing for the coming of the Messiah, um, but we have known and we've seen Jesus has already come, so we're not anticipating His coming, but His return. And so it kind of changes it a little for us. And so Zephaniah is prophesying um, about that, uh, the true satisfying salvation that comes through God alone. And, and we'll see that as the book of Zephaniah unfolds over um, the next five weeks. We have a fifth week in December, and so it, it works out extremely well that we get to, to follow this path. This morning, we're going to be looking at a satisfying lie. Um, now, that title probably seems a little odd, but it's going to make sense as we unpack the first six verses this morning, okay? He begins in Zephaniah chapter 1, and he says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. The word of the Lord simply means that he is coming to make a prophecy, um, to prophesy, um, to proclaim the truth of God's word. Now, the idea of prophecy has kind of morphed um, in, in more modern thinking, and, and it's kind of gotten uh, missed a little. Um, we, we think of prophecy nowadays as some sort of like divine fortune teller. Um, that's not exactly what we know prophecy to be in Scripture. Prophecy in Scripture is the truth being proclaimed, the Word of God, the Word of the Lord being proclaimed. Um, so Zephaniah received this revelation from God for the people. And he's coming to them proclaiming this truth, this truth that satisfying joy it is only going to come in the true saving God. And so before we can really understand the, the full weight of what Zephaniah will say, we need to kind of understand who he is a little bit. We don't really know a ton about Zephaniah. Um, it says that he's the son of Cushi, which means that he's from the land of Cush, so modern-day Sudan, northern Africa. Um, and because of that, we also know that more than likely he's a biracial Jew. 
So it's very likely that his dad was African and his mom was um, a natural-born Jew, that she was born in um, from the tribe of Israel, from the people Israel. And, and that seems may seem insignificant, but it actually plays into the message of Zephaniah really well because what it does is it, it gives kind of credence to his message of this reconciliation for what we'll see later in the book of Zephaniah are the dispersed ones. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's very similar to what we saw Peter doing as we worked through 1 Peter just recently, that he was preaching this message of hope and this message of, of standing firm in Christ, even though they were dispersed because of their faith. And Zephaniah is coming with a message of satisfaction, of true satisfaction in God. And it's a message that in God, all of his people will be gathered together. So regardless of who they are, where they're from, what they're going through, if their faith and their hope and their trust is in God, he will be and is gathering his people together. Is that rain? My gracious. All right. Well, you're probably going to start seeing drips over here in just a little bit. So just don't let that distract you too much. It's pretty normal. I'll just try to talk louder. <clears throat> Good timing, huh? Um, so with Zephaniah, it, you know, you kind of get this introduction. It's Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. And, and what you get with this is this idea of who he is. He's the great, great grandson of Hezekiah, who was a biblical reformer long before the Protestant Reformation. He was a reformer long before Christ, who, who wanted the word of the Lord to be proclaimed, who wanted the word of the Lord to be the foundation that the people stood upon. And because of that, we all also know that he's from this God-honoring royal family. He's from the line of David. Again, is extremely significant but it, because it shows God's faithfulness to his people and to his promise. In Genesis 3, God promised that he would send a Messiah and that Messiah would come through the lineage of David. And here Zephaniah is proclaiming that the Lord is still working all these years later. In fact, Zephaniah's name even means Yahweh has hidden. For the time, he had hidden himself from the people. So when was Zephaniah speaking? It says he was speaking in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Josiah took reign after his father was brutally murdered. Now, before you start feeling really bad for his father, his father was a brutal horrible king. And his father was worse. His father was Manasseh. So Josiah takes the reign on the heels of two godless kings. And he takes the reign at eight years old. Now, most of us in here are parents. Some of us in here are parents of kids that are around that age. I have a seven-year-old. I could not imagine a child at that age ruling a country. But that's exactly what God did in Josiah. And for what we know, he actually ruled pretty well. It's known that around the age of 16, Josiah rummaging through some of the 
archives recovered the book of the law. And he apparently studied that and read that and began to institute a biblical reform in his country. Again, remember who his father and his grandfather were. They were these brutal, murderous kings. Josiah comes in as a young child, finds the book of the law, and begins to change the scene a little. And so Zephaniah is prophesying more than likely between the the time that Josiah finds the book of the law at his age of 16 until or during the midst of the, the reform taking place. So during the midst of this reform is when God sent Zephaniah to proclaim this message of true satisfaction in God. And while the message is one of a satisfying salvation, it begins with a very extremely harsh warning of a satisfying lie. And so as we work through the first six verses this morning, I want us to remember this, that the heart is deceived by sin, and without repentance, you and I will face judgment. There is no way around that. And so I want to pray for us before we begin to unpack a satisfying lie. Father, again this morning we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. God, that you speak through your Holy Spirit, through your word into the lives of your people. And Father, we know that in... Our midst are probably those who have never truly trusted in you. And so we ask that as we work through a text like this, that their hearts, instead of being angered by the judgment of God, that they would be awakened to the truth that you are holy, that you are righteous. And yes, you are gracious. And God, for those of us who do know you and have trusted you with our lives, may we rejoice in the grace that has been extended to us. Selfishly, God, I ask that you touch my voice. Can't seem to get words out this morning. My mind's not quite clicking. So would you display your power in our weakness? Father, we ask that you would bring hope to those who are in desperate need of hope this morning. And we ask that you bring conviction to those who are straying from you. Would you save your people? Would you receive glory from the time that we have together in Christ's victorious and gracious name we pray. Amen. What do we know about sin? Sin brings deception. 
In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Adam's rebellion against God's created order in Genesis 3 gave way to an evil that would affect all of mankind. Sin. Paul writes in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no escape from sin. Sin has corrupted us all and left our hearts deceitful. Thereby making the perfect union between God and man shattered. With absolutely no hope of restoration on our own. That's the message of Genesis 1 and 2. God creates, man rebels. But then in Genesis 3.15, God promises that he's going to eventually make all things new. That he would send a savior, that he would send a messiah, that he would send one to right the wrong. And we know that the people of the Old Testament longed for, they looked for this messiah. In essence, they were to trust in God and His promise. They were to trust that God would make it right, that He would send this Messiah. And many did. Without seeing the Messiah, without knowing of His coming, like we have the privilege of knowing, they, they longed for and they looked for and they hoped in God's promise. But because of sin's deceptive power, many did not. They weren't satisfied in God's promise. They weren't satisfied in God's message. So they began to look for satisfaction in other ways. They began to seek satisfaction in other places. They sought satisfaction in rulers, in people, in man-made idols, we could go on and on and on. They essentially gave way to the satisfying lie that they could be filled with all of these created things. And it's easy for us to sit back and say, well, how could they miss such a promise? How could they put all of their hope and their faith in all of these man-made things? But we're no different. We put our hope and we put our satisfaction in politics, in parties, in sports, in our feelings, in our wants, our own desires. And we worship the created rather than the creator. So before we began to condemn the people who were rejecting God and His way for all of these false idols, we need to carefully look at our own life to see, am I doing the same thing? Calvin was noted for saying this, says the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. We are no different than the people of Zephaniah's day. We find satisfaction in all the wrong places. And as he comes before them, he is preaching to a people who had turned from God and they had turned away from his promise. 
And so God graciously sends Zephaniah, preacher, to come as one who is crying out in the wilderness with a message of hope. If they would repent, they could find true satisfaction and escape coming judgment. That's the same message that we proclaim to you today. That if we seek satisfaction or joy or salvation in anything or anyone other than God alone, we will face judgment. But if we turn to Him, He will surely save. Sin deceives us. That's been sin's motive from the beginning. To make Adam want to be as God. To have all the knowledge, all the power, all the ruling capability. To not be told what he couldn't do. In our day, in our lives, we fall victim to the same thing. We don't want to submit to the authority and the rule of God. We don't want to listen to the word of God and let it direct our path as it's only given for some good advice or suggestion. That's not the case at all. And so as God sent Zephaniah to the people to warn them to turn back to God, to find true satisfaction in God, we Declare today to turn to the Word of God and find salvation and hope and satisfaction in Him above all other things. Because here's what I can tell you. All the other things are going to fail you. Your politicians, your parties, they're going to fail you. Your feelings are going to fail you. Your jobs are going to fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Your children will fail you. Your church will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Your sports teams are going to fail you. God will not. So don't give in to the deceptive lie of sin that says that we can be satisfied or redeemed by our own means. But sin doesn't simply bring deception, it brings judgment. And that's where we pick up with Zephaniah's message. He is warning against sin and the coming judgment because of that sin. In verse 2 he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah begins with this realization of harsh judgment coming for those who are straying from God, who are rebelling against God, who had turned away from Him and turned to their own means for satisfaction and salvation. You kind of see some imagery here of a fruit harvest. In, in their day, it would have likely been some type of grape or fig harvest. 
They would go in and they would remove the good fruit so more fruit could grow, but of the vines and the branches that were producing bad fruit or not producing at all, they would be pruned, they would be cut off and removed. And as Jesus refers in the Sermon on the Mount, they would be cast into the fire. And so you get this image of God unleashing His holy wrath, His pure righteousness against a rebellious people. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. The people of God are called to bear good fruit. We are called to be the light of the gospel, to shine forth the light of the good news. We are to proclaim the promises and the hope of God. And as we see Zephaniah's message, for those who do not, they are cut off and they are thrown into the fire. But it's important to remember this truth that bearing good fruit begins with trusting God. I can't bear good fruit on my own power. I can't bear good fruit without God's help. Because my heart is wicked and deceived. I can't do anything good on my own. And the message of God to His people, I will utterly sweep away everything. And you know, this manner of judgment seems horrible. It's definitely not a popular message. And the reason it seems horrible is because we don't remember that God is holy. But once we remember the holiness of our God and the wretchedness of our sin against Him, then we begin to understand how God could express such truth. It's not as if He's never done it before. In the wickedness of the days of Noah, God destroyed everything and saved a remnant, Noah and his family. Remember, God is just. And because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has every right to wipe away everything He so chooses to do because everything is corrupt. Every person is corrupt. And it's important for us to see the severity of God's impending wrath for sin. He doesn't say, I'll sweep away most of the things, I will sweep away everything. And then he goes and he begins to detail that. I will sweep away, verse 3, man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. So you see in order, he goes man, beast, birds and fish. And he's taking them away one at a time. And as one commentator said, he's almost it's almost some like a decreation, that he is destroying everything, that he will undo everything, even down to the rubble with the wicked, their man-made idols. He will undo all that he has done and that had sinned against him. 
But notice where the judgment begins. It begins with mankind. God gave headship to humanity to rule, to reign in Eden. And as the New Testament tells us, because of one man's sin, all have sinned. And so Adam becomes a type of Christ that he institutes a beginning. But he fails. And because of his failing, judgment is coming to all mankind. Romans 1 clearly says that we are all without excuse. What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus? It is seen in his divine nature and his creative attributes. But I want you to also notice something else. Because the tendency is is to look and say, well, I'm one of God's, so I'm all right. But notice that he is willing to discipline the people that he loves as well. Verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So you get this picture of God disciplining those who are among his people. Who have misstepped and they have turned to idols. They had started crafting all of these idols. They begin to turn away from God. And so God displays His righteous anger towards them. Because they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God had provided for and cared for His people for years upon years upon years. And they constantly turned against Him and forgotten His good promises. And again, the the temptation is to say, how could they forget? Many of us can be found here too. Confessing God with our mouths, but denying Him with our lifestyles. We could dress up and we could go to church on Sunday mornings and we can do the, the churchy things at times and we can even write some checks and we can serve a little bit. But if our heart is corrupt, then we are corrupt. All of life is meant to be worshiping our God. We don't do it when it's convenient. We do it at all times. It is our living sacrifice to worship our God with everything we have. And in so many cases, we surrendered our worship to man rather than to God. We want to give in to man's thought process or man's desires for worship instead of asking, what does God want? What does God want of me? What does God want of my family? What does God want of our church? What does God want of our community? What does God want of our land? And so you begin to see we're not really any different than the audience that Zephaniah is preaching to. We're a people who have turned to the created instead of the creator. He goes on in verse 4, he says, And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and name, and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. So they were saying, ah, yeah, we worship the Lord, but they're also serving these other idols too. 
You can't have it both ways, right? And Revelation says, I want you to either be, you're either going to be hot or you're going to be cold. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. There is no worshiping the Lord with this part of our life and not worshiping the Lord with the other. It's all or none. And as we've seen time and time and time and time again, if we are to be truly satisfied in God, then we give God everything we have. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. And so the people that Zephaniah is preaching to had given their trust to man and man-made gods rather than the one true God, the sovereign creator of all things. I think following Thanksgiving could really point to a lot of that same issue with many of us or our society. The craze of Black Friday. Let's rush to spend all we have. By the way, it's a big scam in case you didn't know that. If you pay attention to price tags, you realize like the normal, uh, you're really paying what you normally would pay. They just take away the normal price, add a bigger price, and then mark it down to what you would normally pay you so you still buy the same amount of stuff. We're finding satisfaction in all the wrong places. And I'm not saying it's like illegal to go buy stuff. That's not what we're saying. But if we're craving that, and that's what we want, and we've got to have the next this or the next that, or we've got to you know, upgrade to this, or we've got to fill our lives with this, we've got to give our kids this, 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 and this, or they're not going to be happy, or we're not going to be good parents, or they're not going to have a good Christmas. Yeah, they can. People have done it for centuries. Because the greatest satisfaction in all of our lives comes from God, not stuff. So are we truly much different than the people that Zephaniah is preaching to? Our world is saturated with man-made and and man-centered ideologies and idols and and New Age practices and all of these weird things. and, And we worship the creation rather than the Creator. And so we must carefully guard our hearts and to be assured that we aren't among those who, he says in verse 6, have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. I bet it would be pretty scary if we took stock of how much we looked at sales papers for Black Friday versus how much we spent in the Word of God this week. Right? Are we seeking Him? Sin brings judgment. And so the satisfying lie is that sin isn't really that bad for us, or it hasn't really infected us. And, and even if it has, God is loving and God is gracious, therefore he will not inflict his judgment upon me. As in, if I can just do what I want to do and, and live how I want to live, and, and as long as I sprinkle a little Jesus in there when it's convenient, I'm good. And when I stand before God, he's going to graciously say, it's okay, I love you anyway. And it doesn't work that way. 
We're either for Him or we are against Him. The satisfying lie is that we're not as bad as we think. But in light of a holy God, we are wretched. And as the writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, folks, sin against a holy God is detestable, and it will assuredly, we will assuredly face judgment because of a truly righteous and just God. He cannot let sin remain unpunished. We've talked about this before. Say you go on a trip and you leave your family behind. You say it's a work trip and someone comes in and murders your entire family. And they know exactly who's done it. All the evidence in the world points to individual X. So you go to court and individual X is, it's clear. There's really no denying this is just a formality. And the judge sees all the evidence and they say, Uh, It's all right. Don't do it again. There's no justice in that. And yet we think that we can bring our sin against a holy God and we could just toss it on him like he is just some big heap that we pile our trash on and he's just going to say, don't worry about it. That's not why Jesus died. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of our sin. Jesus took our sin. And God had to turn away and unleash his holy wrath on his son. Sin brings deception and sin brings judgment. But there is good news. God brings salvation. We began by looking at Jeremiah chapter 17. So I want you to turn over to Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. Starting in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the hills, on the mountains in the open country, Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all of your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Skip to verse 9. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. And those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. You get a picture of God's righteous judgment towards his people. He's going to take all of your riches, all of our riches, and give it to spoils. He's going to take away our heritage, our inheritance. He's going to take away all of these things. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now I want you to go back to look at verse 7 and verse 8. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. That sends out its roots by the stream. And does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. In the midst of a message of judgment, there is hope. And the hope is in King Jesus. It is the one who has trust in the Lord. It is the one who has rested completely in God and God alone. It is the one whose satisfaction, soul satisfaction is in God. If anything or anyone other than God alone is the ultimate treasure of your life, then you have turned away from Him. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. The person who trusts God above all else will never cease to bear fruit. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green. So he doesn't fear when trouble comes. He doesn't fear When things are not going quite like we think they should go because our trust is in the Lord and He's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit because our satisfaction, our provision comes from God who cannot, who will not fail. So what's the message? That sin brings deception which which leads to judgment. But if you trust in God alone, He will save you. See, Advent is about longing for God to come. In Old Testament times, they were longing for God to fulfill His promise in sending the Messiah. The Messiah has come, so we long for His return. But I want to tell you this. If you have never trusted in God, if He is not the supreme source of your satisfaction... You might want to pump the brakes on wanting him to come. 
Because when he comes, so does judgment. His return, his coming again is not good news for those who have not trusted in the Lord. You must trust in the Lord. You know, this is a time of year where anxieties increase greatly. Because of the things we don't have or the things we can't get. Or the things we can't provide. But it's God and God alone who can provide the greatest satisfaction to the soul. And so if you're here this morning and if you've never trusted in Christ. Trust in the Lord. You want true satisfaction? Turn to Jesus. You want true hope? Turn to Jesus. You want to find peace? Turn to Jesus. You want to see true love on display? Turn to Jesus. It's a message that we see Nicodemus in the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? If you're here this morning and if you've never trusted in Jesus, you need to be asking that question. And I want to tell you what the answer is. You must be born again. Turn from your sin and turn to a gracious king. Long for his coming. Rejoice in the promise that he's coming again to take us. To worship Him for all of eternity. We don't have to be bound by sin and its shackles. That we can be set free through the blood of Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father... May we not give in to the satisfying lie that sin satisfies us. Let us be satisfied in God, in God alone. May our hearts be wrecked this morning with the reality that so much of our lives are filled with effort And struggle and striving to be satisfied in things that cannot satisfy us. Let us repent. And let us trust in God alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.